0: To our listeners and everyone watching, um, welcome to our iHouse Berkeley Oral Histories conversation. Um, my name is Chancellor Mackenzieola. I'm the social media ambassador for iHouse, and today I'll be your host. Today we have Joe Lurie. He's the Executive Director Emeritus of International House at UC Berkeley, and author. And he also helps with cross cultural communications. So welcome, Joe.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you.
0: Pleasure to be with you. Um, how are you doing?
1: Uh, you know, that question is being asked around the globe, and I suspect many of us share similar feelings about the ups, the downs, the challenges, and in some cases, being uh, feeling that many of us don't understand the deeper suffering of people who are in hospitals, who are hungry, who are being evicted. So it is a very challenging time across the globe right now.
0: Yes, that's uh, that's definitely understandable. And given your time as um, the executive director at I-House, um, you were the executive director for like almost two decades and you came in in 1988, you left in 2007. And during that time, I just wanted to know, um, I'm pretty sure there was definitely like some significant changes that have happened, um, c- cultural awakenings that you've probably uh, noticed and uh, Definitely just like changes in perception too. And so what were your impressions of iHouse house when you first came in mm-hmm. um, back in 1988? And then how did those perceptions um, change by the time that you left?
1: Uh, well, when I came, I was enormously honored uh, to have been uh, uh, selected to be the third executive director in, in effect it was at the time close to 60 years. And, um, I knew a lot about International House Berkeley because I lived fairly close to the International House in New York City for a while. And I felt that the first thing that was important for me to do was to interview every single staff member at iHouse to get a sense of what had gone before, what were their hopes, what did they feel were the opportunities and challenges. The second thing that I did, and I would recommend this to anybody who was fortunate enough to hold this position, is to read two extraordinary oral histories about International House. One done by the first executive director, Alan Blaisdell, a 400-page oral history. Uh, And the second was an oral history by Harry Edmonds, who had the original idea of international houses. Um, And he talks a lot about the creation of International House at Berkeley. And when I read these two volumes and listened to the staff here at at I-House, I became aware of the fact that there was an extraordinary history about International House that had been largely forgotten. And in the headline is that International House Berkeley was the very first interracial, coeducational, living, learning center in the United States, west of New York City. That had been completely forgotten. And it was a long debate as to whether this house was going to be placed where on the campus? This was a day when, believe it or not, Berkeley was like Mississippi. It was totally segregated. And here on Piedmont Avenue, all of the fraternities, all of the people living in this area was all Caucasian. And when the idea of International House was proposed to the community, there was an uproar. People thought their property values would go down. Oh my God, people are going to sleep together who come from different backgrounds. And of course they did. International House gave birth to some of the very first interracial marriages in the United States, on the West Coast, in fact. And Mr. Edmonds, just to kind of draw uh, uh, a circle around this, said, let us put International House right on Piedmont Avenue in the middle of the bigotry. And let us show them that this is a place where it is possible to connect if you have an opportunity to discover each other's humanity. So um, long story short, I felt it was very important at that time as I began to learn about its extraordinary history uh, to work with my colleagues, my predecessors, to create a historical exhibit down near the auditorium. It's called the Hall of History. You may have seen it during your time here, Chancellor. And, um, before my time, there was nothing there. People would come into the auditorium thinking that International House was a place where students from other countries lived without even realizing that Americans lived here, U.S. Americans. And of course, part of the whole issue was not to create a quote unquote foreign ghetto here uh, on the Berkeley campus. And that 30% of the students, even to this day, there are, I would say the most people on the campus still think when they say International House, oh, that's where all the foreign students live. So we felt it was important to begin to articulate the history, even in all of our promotional materials, we would say International House a Living Learning Center for U.S. and students from other countries around the world, so that people would know that I-House was a place which encouraged interchange, and that people from other countries wouldn't feel isolated. So those were among the very, very first um, changes we made. The second thing I noticed with my colleagues was that we had a modest financial aid program. And so it's one thing to say you want to discover people's different ethnic realities, right? National realities, whatever. It's another thing to say, do I understand somebody who comes from a different economic class? So in those days, there were very few scholarships. I think there was $30,000 a year at the time. This was 1988. And there were no scholarships for US students and scholars none. So one of the first initiatives we took was to create a fund for U.S. American students and it was uh, inspired by people here at iHouse and the Osher Institute, the Osher Foundation here in, in the Bay Area helped to kick that off. And to this day, um, where there is now something like s- close to, well at the, my, at the end of my tenure, It was uh, something like $550,000 in the fund after 19 and a half years, uh, including uh, students from every single background, all parts of the United States, et cetera, et cetera. So that was a significant commitment, a commitment to socioeconomic diversity. Let me just, if I may, just kind of elaborate on that. One of our distinguished alumni was the crown prince of Norway, and he insisted on having a roommate. He could have had a, a single room. He said, I want a roommate, I want a normal life. His roommate was on scholarship, was, a, the, uh, was an American citizen, but his parents were refugees from Cuba. Very modest economic background. That coming together of those two cultures and two economic classes was terribly significant. They would be seen going out dancing at salsa clubs. The crown prince of Norway. This is just kind of a, a little anecdote. Uh, The other thing that we thought was important was to tell the story to other people so that the International House, because there are not that many around the world. There are 15 major houses around the world. Some of them have actually on the verge of closing or have closed. Others have inspired international dorms, quote unquote dorms. We felt it was important to tell the story. International House on the UC Berkeley campus is the largest, most diverse residential cultural center in the Western United States, one of the four largest international houses in the world. Here, students from 70 countries and 35 states, imagine 600 of them all living together, living the day-to-day realities of learning to live with diversity. With the help of a former president of the Bank of America, we got $100,000 to produce a public television uh, documentary about International House Berkeley, which is still a source of inspiration for many people. I think you've seen it yourself, right, Chancellor? Oh, I was really Um,
0: impressed.
1: Another thing that Became, we became aware of is that this house, as beautiful as it is, was not built for people with disabilities. So if you were in a wheelchair, up until the, you know, I, my predecessor's time, uh, Sheridan Warwick, the only way you could get into the house was through the back door where the deliveries were made. right? Or they created a little elevator in front of the house. Now, the problem with the elevator was it was exposed to the elements and it broke down. So we decided, with our House Committee's cooperation, inspiration, energy, to create a disabled ramp right in front of International House, which is you know, normal for people who, come, who have been here for the past, I guess, 25 years now. But in order to build that ramp, we had to remove the disabled elevator, quote unquote, and to do that, you had to remove a tree. Now, Chancellor, as you may know, there's a big tree lobby here in Berkeley and they started to protest us, to protest. You are taking down a tree? You are killing that tree? What a dilemma, right? Mm-hmm. So you had the progressives understandably wanting to protect nature, and you had other people who said, wait a second, this is an institution for all people, irregardless of their condition, their background, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, one of the secrets of trying to work at I-House is to work towards win-win. So we knew we couldn't take down the tree during the day because people would go nuts here on the campus, many. So we took the tree down at three o'clock in the morning, but we replanted it. So if you go to Morrison Hall on campus, that tree, which we took down and replanted there. So in that way, we were able to, in effect, respect the rights of residents who had disabilities and at the same time show respect for people who were concerned about killing trees, right? And I'm very happy that subsequent to my time at I-House, other improvements have been made in the house to encourage and enable people in wheelchairs to have access to the whole house. I think that's been a very positive development. The other thing that was important when I came here was that, you know, the cafe on Piedmont Avenue. It used to be called in the old days, the coffee shop. It was called a cafe when they decided to serve alcohol there in the 70s, which was a big controversy. And as you can imagine, drinking alcohol, who could drink it? What are the cultural issues up until what time at night was always uh, an issue during my time?
0: Was it still the 21 and over? Age limit or? <laughs>
1: well, that's the, that's the law. And of course, many uh, people from s- many countries where you don't have that kind of age limit were you know, horrified at that. They couldn't understand that reality because what was normal for them seemed abnormal here, right? And for some people who are sensitive about alcohol, right? Uh, y- y- this is the beauty of iHouse. You have this opportunity, not that everybody grasps it, to engage with people face to face and to listen to each other right? To listen to each other. And which brings me back again to the very origins of international house. When it opened, there was prohibition here. And I was told by residents who lived here in the thirties that all of the men had their backpacks checked all of the time to see if they had alcohol because they weren't allowed to have it. They did not check the women because they assumed that the women were, you know, know, why would women want to drink alcohol? Right, (laughs) So John Kenneth Galbraith, a very famous uh, economist who lived here in International House, actually became the ambassador to India under John F. Kennedy. And was even thought to run for president at one time in the United States, but couldn't because he was born in Canada. I met him many times. And he writes about and told me the story of coming home one night, 1931, and in the patio, he and some of his friends looked down and what did they see? They saw a woman who took off all her clothes. She was obviously completely full of alcohol and she was doing all kinds of you know, erotic dances. So that broke the stereotype, well, women can't drink alcohol. This was another lesson in breaking stereotypes, right? So they started to check all the women after that.
0: <laughs> That's
1: Then I think a couple of other things that was important was that we came here the cafe Was being operated by International House and it was at a financial loss And so we decided together as a community that we should rent it out So it would permanently have income and the cafe is important for two two reasons one A lot of people think that's the dining room who are on campus and don't see beyond their bubble secondly the main reason for it in is in its inception was to encourage people in this segregated area to come in, have a cup of coffee and meet somebody who's actually different. And so we wanted to, if you like, resurrect, resurrect that spirit of engagement, have people on the campus who knew nothing about students from other countries, had very little idea about who they were, what they believed, where they came from, that they could come and mingle with them. And by the way, also, Maybe it would kind of give them the idea that maybe this is a place I'd like to live. So it was kind of a soft marketing thing, but it was also primarily to push the mission of International House in the spirit of its very origins, which we had forgotten for a long long time. Mm -hmm. And then finally, um, you know, some of the major events, and I'll talk a little bit more about some of the programs we developed, if you like. Yeah. Were that we celebrated three main anniversaries here. 60th anniversary, the 65th anniversary, and of course uh, the 75th anniversary. And those were all very inspiring events because they um, inspired the coming together of alumni, um, increased interchange, deep, deepening uh, interchanges, and it raised a lot of money. So basically uh, over time, Uh, While the House only had $3 $3 million million of reserves to protect it in case of an earthquake, we knew we had to build the reserves. And so by the time we left, and I know it's larger now, we had something like $21 million of unrestricted reserves plus endowments in case of an earthquake. Uh, And speaking of earthquakes, let me just pause there. We, with the help of our House committee, very talented, committed members of our board of director, renovated 80% of this building. Every resident room was earthquake strengthened. Every hallway, every bathroom, parts of the dining room, um, other parts of the building. And then subsequent to my days, other renovations took place that enhanced uh, uh, earthquake preparedness uh, as well. Even as we speak, I believe they just finished strengthening the dome, which was somebody discovered could actually tumble in a major earthquake. Oh, wow. So those were some of the major items uh, during my time. Other other things, of course, relate to programs. But let me pause there and see what else is uh, piquing your interest.
0: I know they've had renovations, like you said, during your time there and subsequent, um, subsequently. Then, but yeah, that was also something to that I had to keep in mind too, because like I'm coming from Texas, and we don't really have like a lot of earthquakes uh, where I am. So. Yeah, that was a culture shock, I guess. Not a culture shock, but um, the fact that I actually, like, experienced one when I was there, like a mini one. uh, uh, Yeah, that just brought back some memories when you mentioned that.
1: So, you you know, actually, that just kind of um, jogs my memory. Um, We used to, and they still do, do um, retreats for new residents. We took them away from the building, and the whole idea of it was that because they shared a certain common vulnerability, most of them didn't know each other. That was the bond that permitted them to cross cultures and to meet people that they had no idea that they otherwise would have had a relationship with. And so those retreats were so significant that we expanded them from three a year to six a year to try to maximize the number of new residents who could connect in this common sense of vulnerability. I don't know anyone. And then they would find themselves next to somebody who would come from a completely different background And I would say for the most part, the people that they met at the retreats remained friends and as a group throughout the year. And at one of these retreats, see, I almost lost my train. At At one of these retreats, all of the staff who were concerned with safety would give a little orientation on what do you do in case of an emergency? Of course, right, what do you do? That night, after everyone went to sleep, there was an earthquake out in the countryside up near Glen Ellen in California. It was an earthquake like this. You see it? You feel it? Chancellor, oh, yes, you it. Wow. And so in the morning, you know, people woke up and you know, brilliant Berkeley students, you know what, they were skeptical and they said, oh, come on, oh, come on, Joe. You were just shaking the buildings to make, give us the feeling of what it was like. So on one level, they were in denial that it was a real earthquake. Secondly, there was that healthy skepticism, which can be mistaken too. And they thought, oh, that's just playing a joke on us. But it was a a 5.5 earthquake in the countryside that night. So let me stop there.
0: A lot of memories to bring up on that. that, And I'm pretty sure definitely, like, alum can also talk about that as well. Um, So um, kind of going into my next question, too, because um, you wrote a book called Perception and Deception, right? Um, a Mind-Opening Journey Across Cultures, in which you describe the lessons that you've learned from meeting people from around the world. And you also describe your experience, you know, when you were in the Peace Corps in Kenya, um, various extensive travels, like, you know, in West Africa, um, a- parts of Asia, like just basically all around the world. And so I wanted to know, how did those encounters, um, and of course, you mention it in detail in your book, like the kind of cultural differences, and cultural, like, awareness that um, you were able to recognize within yourself and within others. Um, how, how did those encounters influence your leadership when you were at iHouse?
1: Well, you know, going to another country, whether you were in the Peace Corps or otherwise, all of a sudden you become aware of the fact that you don't know what you don't know. And what you think you're looking at is not necessarily what you're looking at or what you're smelling or what you are um, experiencing on any level. Because all of us, to tell the truth, we are imprisoned by the limitations of our experience. I don't care if you've traveled to 100 countries, those are, you're still limited. So two very seminal experiences during my time in Kenya. Uh, on the way to Kenya, our airplane was flying from London and did a, a fuel stop in Entebbe, Uganda. We got out of the plane, right, on en route to Nairobi, And the night was dark, the air was humid, the fans were moving like this, there were some, you know, you get the feeling you're in a tropical area. And I remember saying to one of my fellow volunteers, wow, we're in Africa, don't you smell the lions? Lions. Now, Chancellor, there were no lions within 30 miles of that airport I discovered later. Why did I think I was smelling the lions? Because that is because the media in this country and most Western countries focus primarily on either safaris, even to this day, safaris, animals, poverty, AIDS. You don't hear about technology. You don't hear about movie makers. You don't hear about novelists. These are not common narratives. So obviously it skews people's perceptions of people throughout the continent where, by the way, I discovered over 3,000 languages are spoken. 3,000. Kenya, just a modest 50. <laughs> a <laughs> modest 50 languages in Kenya. At any rate, and the second one, and this was just uh, uh, part of kind of introducing the book and preparing me on some level for International House. The second one that was remarkable was when I got to my village, I was living in a remote Rural village. I was the only Caucasian there, which is a very good experience to know what it's like to live as a minority. But in that case, I found people extremely welcoming, despite the fact that there had been this, you know, very violent revolution against the British. And so, gee, are they going to think I'm British and I'm a former imperialist, whatever. No, people were very welcoming. But what surprised me, Chancellor, was I thought, well, like in my home, if somebody moved uh, in on the block, or in the apartment next to me, I might welcome them and say, have them over for a meal or tea or coffee, whatever. Nobody invited me. So what I was saying to myself is, what is wrong here? Have I offended them? Do they think that something about me they're not sharing? What, why, what have I done? Long story short, I decided to invite them to my house. (laughs) So my fellow teachers who are on the faculty of the school where I was teaching came to the house We had a very lovely dinner. We exchanged ideas and thoughts about Kenya, about the United States, et cetera, et cetera. So what did I expect, Chancellor? That I would get an invitation back? Nothing. Nothing. So I said, did I offend them? What is it? Is it maybe they don't think that a white person would go to their home? You know, did I do something wrong? One night, two months later, alcohol does have a plus from time to time, Chancellor. (laughs) We were in the bar chatting and I had a few drinks and I got up the courage to say, did, did you have a good time at, at my house that night? Oh, Joe, it was a great night. Could you please tell me why you've never invited me to your houses? And they looked at me, stunned, stunned. Joe, the door is always open. We don't, invitations are superfluous why would somebody want to invite somebody when the door is always open you just walk right into their house
0: it, it, the time. i did
1: this and it proved to be true actually throughout my travels in africa west africa south africa east africa anytime i would go visit somebody who knew me obviously briefly at least in passing not only did i was the door open the door was always open but they started preparing a meal so i had to basically realize that I couldn't go visit too many people in a day because I couldn't eat all those meals (laughs) because the door was always open. And of course, I met Kenyans later on in the United States who could not understand why you had to make an appointment, why you had to make an appointment to visit somebody. Um, So those experiences then later on, because of my experiences in the Peace Corps, I began a career of international educational exchange. I really believe that the best way that you can help people to get beyond their bubble, their own limited experience is to travel and live with people from other countries. So again, taking a leap ahead, I did direct a a program, an academic program for world learning in Ghana. Um, And we all live with families, all of us. That was the whole idea, immerse yourself. Don't live in some remote hotel apart from the community or be on a cruise ship where you're having no contact. And what did I learn when I was in Ghana that one, and they speak about 40 or 50 languages in Ghana, by the way. Um, It has this extraordinary range of symbols in their fabrics, in their sculpture. And I was just taken with the amazing amount of symbols. And in fact, I had a couple of former residents donate things that we hung at International House, the Adinkra cloths. Uh, which your viewers may not know, but they are basically worn as, uh, what would you call them? Kind of um, gowns that have all kinds of symbols that make statements about their state of mind or the Kenty cloths that the weavings have definite, definite meetings, specific meetings. Then I discovered that the chiefs always had a spokesperson for the most part. And the spokespeople had, I'm getting to the eye house part, the, spokes, the spokespeople for the chiefs would have a staff and at the top of the staff, they would stand in front of the chief, there would be symbols that said something about the philosophy of the chief. And so when I was in Ghana, I saw one spokesperson who was like the press secretary of the chief. And he had at the top of his staff, can you see this? It's a hand holding an egg, right? Very nice. And you know, I never forgot it. And when a Ghanaian student came to I House, I said, you know, I really love that symbol. I'll tell you what it means in a second. And the symbol, you know, he was kind of struck that I knew what it meant. (laughs) He was a little surprised, right? And the symbol is the proper way to handle authority, which I always, not that I was always successful, but I always tried to have it shape the way I managed the house. If you hold the egg too tightly, what's going to happen?
0: It's going
1: to crack. if you don't hold it firmly enough.
0: It'll still crack and fall.
1: (laughs) What a beautiful metaphor. So I told him about this. When he went back to Ghana, he sent me this. Very nice. So that, you know, kind of you you say, what was it about the Peace Corps? These discoveries, these mind boggling discoveries that set me on this path of doing a career of international educational exchange, which informed me of many of the, the ways I thought I could help with my staff, students discover each other's realities. So that was um, terribly significant. And then, of course, during my time at iHouse we had many alumni reunions uh, in London, in Singapore, in Taiwan, in Italy, in Korea, in Japan, Hong Kong. And, um, you know, it was my pleasure. Go ahead. Did you want to add?
0: Oh, yeah, I actually kind of want to go um back a little bit to that too, when you're talking about um like cross um cultural like communications too, and like how kind of helping students like understand each other in the same way that like others were able to help you understand more about them and vice versa too. so um there's actually a part in your book that I was reading, um which I thought was actually like very funny. There was like two instances. one was actually a student from Ghana, and there was another student there. Um, I, I believe they were from London or something, and, like, they were one of the, I think the student from either London, but she wasn't from Ghana, was working on a project about Ghana and wanted the Guinean student to kind of help her with it, and then when they were about to leave, the Guinean student followed her all the way to her room, and she kind of got scared, like, what's going on, and then she came to you to explain, like, what does that mean, um, like, can you interpret that for me, and apparently that that means, like, I guess it's their way of kind of showing that like the person got home safely or to the room before that they left and you kind of wanted to affirm that with her
1: too. That was an amazing experience because I, I just, just by serendipity, I had discovered that there is this widespread uh, custom in Ghana and perhaps other parts of the, the continent, uh, not everywhere, but certainly in Ghana, that when you have a guest, you walk them home You know how we we have a guest? Mm -hmm. Hi, safe journey. (laughs) See you later. Or at least you
0: walk them to their car, and then, like, you say. Walk
1: them to the car, that's it. No, walk them home. So this woman uh, from San Francisco Mm -hmm. came and was working on a project, as you say, with this Ghanaian woman. She's finished. Oh, it's done. She starts to walk back to her room. And she cannot understand why this Ghanaian woman is following her. The Ghanaian woman is taking her culture. She's walking her home. The woman from San Francisco has a particular narrative. Why is this woman following me? She thinks she might be gay and trying to seduce her. Complete misrepresentation. And this also kind of brings to mind the fact that we always had dances here, right? And on the posters for dancers, you would see men and women symbols dancing together. And there was one dramatic year where uh, some of the gay uh, and lesbian students would write on it, big bold letters, we exist too. This was in the mid nineties, you know? Um, and then later on towards the end of my career, I know that there was a, uh, a gay couple that had met here in the fifties and had, hi- had to hide their relationship and later became um, donors to international House. There's even a plaque in their honor. Uh, at the top part of our patio, um, the inner patio, uh, honoring yeah, them.
0: I think it was, um, Vern and Paul, we like, um, recently highlighted them on our um, iHouse
1: Facebook page. Oh, so, good, wonderful, yeah, wonderful. So yes, uh, those, um, those relationships and those discoveries in my travels, uh, in my Peace Corps days, it definitely helped me to help as far as I could with my staff, and I had a very talented program staff, bring people together, do things together.